Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is the legendary broadcaster, Martin Tyler. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including my story on site in Seattle this week, writing about the Sounders winning the CONCACAF Champions League final. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Martin Tyler in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Uh, if you're an American soccer fan who doesn't support Manchester City, the last two days have been a dizzying, delirious ride of fun. Uh, for me, it has not been so much. But I, I have to be honest, did not think I'd find as much of a silver lining in Seattle winning the CONCACAF Champions League. But I did. It was really fun to watch. It seemed like you were at one of the cool places to be in American soccer probably in the last five years. Because uh, that, that environment looked awesome. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I'm out in Seattle still. It's 4.06 a.m. Pacific, 7.06 where you are. I would prefer being in your shoes <laughs> right <now>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you probably would prefer the night sleep that I had last night, brief as it was. Oh, shoot. But, uh, but I'm here, and you're jumping out of a plane later, but that's a yep. different story. Um what what what, what a funny what a funny thing for the audience to experience absent context if they've not heard that I'm jumping out of an airplane that I'm skydiving today. Uh, <laughs> hopefully this is not the last recording of me. Hopefully this isn't my last <laughs> podcast. Oh shoot, man! Be safe, but uh, good luck. I'm sure it'll be a, a another life highlight, and uh, so that's that's awesome. Um, but uh, out here in Seattle, I just finished writing my story for grantwall.com. Really happy with how it turned out. Great stuff from Garth Lagerway, the GM of the Sounders, by the way, uh, in that story. So I hope folks read that one. But Seattle 5, Pumas 2 over two legs, 3-0 here in leg two in front of 68,000-plus. Giant crowd, sellout crowd uh, at Lumen Field. And... Kind of an interesting game because, uh, you know, this wasn't how necessarily Seattle wanted it to happen, losing two starters in the first half of this game to injuries, including Joao Paulo to what appears to be an ACL that could put him out the year, which is, you know, this is a guy who's kind of the heart and soul of the team in the defensive midfield, terrific player. Losing him on a non-contact injury about 30 minutes into the game after they had already lost Nuhu 11 minutes into the game due to injury. And yet, it, they, they, it didn't really hurt Seattle all that much. You had Obed Vargas, the 16-year-old, come in for Joao Paulo and played well, I thought. And Kellen Rowe, not 16, he's 30. Uh, came in at left back and uh, and did fine. And eventually, you know, Seattle got the goals. The Stars had a good game. Royal Ruiz Diaz, two goals. Nico Ladero gets the last one very late. And again, Seattle deserved this, I thought. And you, you mentioned the two injuries, and, and there were certainly probably the pickouts of the first half for me as well. And you also mentioned Garth Lagerway and the way that he has built the Seattle team to the point where losing 
your star defensive midfield player who was an MVP candidate at times last year, given how well he was playing in the absence of Seattle's biggest stars and helping them uh, still towards the top of the Western Conference last year, was enormously impressive. And then you bring in two guys that I think would represent in the past the areas where MLS lose the Champions League, right? Where it's the guys from, let's say, 13 to 17 on the roster because of the way that MLS dictates your roster build that you have to hit on those sorts of guys. Seattle have put a lot into their youth system. It's starting to bear fruit. Uh, in, in Obed Vargas, a 16-year-old coming on, he's from Alaska. He's a dual national, could potentially uh, play for Mexico as well. But, you know, what a great story to, to find him and to kind of bring through a homegrown player really for the first time in a significant way since DeAndre Yedlin, whatever it was, eight years ago. And then... You mentioned Kellen Rowe, a guy who's bounced around a million MLS clubs. Uh, he, I, I honestly thought for a while that he was probably towards the end of the road. He has one last go of it uh, playing at home, and he has been huge for them the last couple seasons with the injuries that they've had, playing in Centrum Field, playing on the left wing, playing at left back. He's been so versatile and helpful, and that for me is a testament to why Seattle are the club that did this because they build from top to bottom. They know how to win in this competition, and they know how to win, period. They're a club that know exactly who they are and how pieces fit so that when they have to bring in guys at $200,000 a year, they can fit in and, and play a role, even though probably in this competition they shouldn't like guys making two hundred thousand dollars shouldn't be, and yet they they have enough. They have enough to survive a couple of major injuries, even in the first half of a game. Yeah, and that's a great point you're making because like this game is sort of a testament to what Loggerway has built uh, with this team. Uh, and I mean, you have to read my story, but like this is a game that Loggerway has been pointing to for literally more than a decade. Because I didn't realize until I came out here and spent time with him this week that when he was at Salt Lake and they got to the CCL final in 2011 and ended up going out by a goal to Monterey, that that was a huge, huge moment in Lagerway's career. And he has been spending the last 11 years trying to get a team back to the CCL final because... It's great to win MLS Cups, and a lot of teams in this league would prefer to win MLS Cup over a CONCACAF Champions League. Garth Lagerway would rather win a CCL uh, if, if it comes down to it. It's a continental trophy. No MLS team had done it before, and now he and his team have done it. So just a huge credit to, to him and also the entire Sounders organization. I mean, this is going to be fun to watch them at the Club World Cup. I'm told it's going to be likely in February, somewhere in the Middle East, but a real opportunity to play against other continental champions, including Liverpool or Real Madrid uh, as one of them, uh, for a real trophy. So uh, it'll be fun to see an MLS team for anyone who's been waiting for that to happen uh, for a really long time now at the FIFA Club World Cup. And is there anything else before we get to <laughs> what happened with Man City and, <laughs> and, and Real Madrid uh, about the Seattle achievement? I would rather, uh, can we do 10 minutes on Bournemouth getting promoted to the Premier League again? <laughs> anything to avoid talking about that subject. No, I, I do want to ask you, though, uh, 
what was the atmosphere like? Because obviously there was so much talk about uh, the, the the stadium selling out. What did it mean for the people that were in that stadium? Because I think you're right to point out, you know, what it's meant to the Seattle organization. Weirdly, given their success in MLS, I would not have even thought of Seattle as like even like a top three team that was going to win this competition because they've kind of struggled in it. I'm not like they haven't really put together great runs in the Champions League. They went out a few years ago to a Panamanian side, I believe, in Olympia. Uh, so, or I, or they in, are they in Honduras? I, I, I forget, but either way, um, Honduran, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're Honduran side. So, you know, like they've not necessarily put together the best Champions League run, but, uh, what did it mean inside the city and the build up to the game? Could you tell that, you know, the town kind of shut down for the CONCACAF Champions League? And I think everyone sort of felt the importance of that. And hopefully that means that the importance of this competition spreads even more. Cause I think this is sort of the beginning of interest in this competition because now you can say the MLS versus Liga MX rivalry is not a given, which it has been for 15 years. I also don't think necessarily that MLS should celebrate this as, you know, their their crowning achievement, mission accomplished, job done. I think this, again, has to be the beginning of pushing towards regularly winning this competition, not it feeling like a one-off. So I, I would just ask you, having been in Seattle uh, what was the experience and the journey like of being around a, a group of fans that were that interested in this competition? This was just a, a, a big-time atmosphere for a soccer game when you sell it out. And as you mentioned, selling out a CONCACAF Champions League game is not the same thing as uh, something where you've sold like basically the you know, season tickets for the entire stadium. You, I mean, this requires a lot of effort, and the Seattle organization deserves credit for the marketing for this. You know, doing having Marshawn Lynch do a viral video ad about a big effing game, and and people starting to get that and getting it here in Seattle. They understood the magnitude of the game, and then this week you had a Ken Griffey voiceover of sort of great moments in the history of Seattle sports. And I used to live here in Seattle for four years back uh, between 2000 and 2004. And there's a lot of like local sports pride. And so when you bring out Ken Griffey Jr. to talk about great moments in the history of Seattle sports and how this Seattle Sounders CONCACAF Champions League final is one of them, that resonates with people. And it, it Definitely did, just seeing the excitement uh, and all the people that were around the stadium, you know, within hours of the game. You know, I, I got there around four o'clock, seven o'clock local kickoff, and there were a ton of people already out there. And I ended up, you know, appearing on uh, KJR, the big sports radio station, had a uh, a location before the game, and, and we talked at length. And it's kind of fun for me, just as someone who's covered soccer in this country for so long, to see the big sports media apparatus of a, a, a city like Seattle come out and do its thing. You know, this is what everyone was talking about, and it feels like a major league sport here in Seattle. And I've said that about soccer here ever since the Sounders started in MLS in 2009. It feels major league here. There's real pressure. There's real support. And this community loves its players. And, and this, what happened here last night was another giant moment in that fandom. And it feeds off itself. And so it was just so neat to see 
how excited Brian Schmetzer, the coach, was. He's a Seattle guy. Uh, and now they, they've won some major trophies here. MLS Cups in 2016 and 2019. CONCACAF Champions League in 2022. And they're aware that no other MLS team had done it since the move to a league format in 2008. They were aware that Mexican teams had won the last 16 CONCACAF crowns. And you're definitely right when you say that MLS getting one after 16 straight Mexican teams is still 16 to one. And so MLS needs to now win more of these. But I do feel like we're going to see that happen soon again. And it's going to become more the norm. And I think the gap between MLS and League MX is... Um, is closing fast, and and this is an example of it. And I think getting over the hump and getting that first one was just really big for Major League Soccer. Yeah, I think this has been as much a mental hurdle as a talent gap. I, I do think that there is something about the last 15 minutes away in Mexico that MLS clubs have not been able to get over the line. Not only did Seattle get over the line in those last 15 minutes in the first leg, they sort of thrived. They got two late penalties. They were on the receiving end of all the good luck that normally goes to the League MX teams in those moments. So they deserve an enormous amount of credit for how they conducted themselves. And frankly, in the last few minutes when it could have been Pumas getting a comeback, they just completely they put Pumas to the sword. That was the end of that. And, you know, everyone kind of gets to have their heroic, Lodeo had a heroic moment, and Rui Diaz, and Morris, and it's really cool for the whole front four that those guys kind of become the heroes that they deserve to be, uh, not only for the success that they've had domestically, but now uh, for, the, for, for these results in the CONCACAF Champions League. So uh, I, I do think that this is now the beginning of an era. There is a post-era of MLS has won this competition, and now this is a real rivalry between the leagues, but... I, I hope that means that there's more ambition, not less. That it's not, okay, this system, what we have for the rosters in MLS is good enough to win this competition. We don't need to improve it. We don't need to add stuff to it. It's let's keep pushing. Let's make sure that when America and Chivas and Tigres and Monterrey are in this competition and at full strength, that they that we have enough for them as well. Because you could also make an argument that this is a weak field in the CONCACAF Champions League. So I, I, I do think that that should be taken into consideration. No, definitely. And and I think I think MLS understands that most of the teams, and I think the league office understands it. We'll see where they go from here. Uh, I do want to get to just an absolutely wild moment in the history of the UEFA Men's Champions League on Wednesday with Real Madrid, every time you think they're done, uh, somehow finds a way to come back from the dead. And to do it against Man City down two goals in the 90th minute and get to take take it to extra time and then have Kareem Benzema draw and convert the game-winning penalty and give us another view of sad Pep Guardiola in the, the Champions League. Um, just an incredible turn of events, and I don't know what much else to say, except Real Madrid has done this multiple times now in this competition this season, but this was the most extreme example. Well, I think it might be the most extreme example you know, in recent club history as well. I mean, Real Madrid sort of do this, a lot. They're 
the team that has won the most European titles for a reason. And I was legitimately, so I, I was I was touring the uh, Miami Formula One track uh, with a bunch of international media, uh, a, a, a colleague who was streaming the game on an iPad. We were watching it while we were supposed to be taking in the sights and sounds of Miami's Formula One track. But I was in the middle of a, you know, look at Manchester City. This is not your old Manchester City where, you know, they're going to go for it every time and try and win every game 4-3. If you look at the nil-nil at Atletico and the one-nil now, this is a team that just professionally handles their business. They're not... And then a meteor hit the field. It was unreal what unfolded in real time. The way that Real Madrid just don't die they don't die and like I can't explain it I really can't other than this is what they do they win they don't like like it's inbred in their club in in some ways it's the biggest thing that Manchester United have lost since Sir Alex left it's not necessarily like you know you can explain their with their playing style or with the their their style their idea of how they play the game they just win they figure out ways to win. Maybe you can look at their squad and say, ah, maybe their opposition is better, but it doesn't matter because they just win. And I don't know how else to explain what happened other than that because it was very clear. After So for 189 minutes, Man City dominates the tie. And then Real Madrid have two good minutes. And I legitimately think that Real Madrid... Could or that Man City could have tried for an hour, for two hours, for three hours to get an equalizing goal after Benzema converts the penalty in extra time. Man City were never going to get back in that game. It was over. Once the second goal went in, in, in the 91st minute when Rodrigo got that header, I said to someone next to me, this tie is over. Real Madrid are going to find a way to win this. There is no way that Man City are picking themselves off the mat and getting back into it. And it's unreal the weight of them in that competition, them in that venue, and them with that sort of wave. Uh, I guess if you want to call it momentum, I, I don't know what you call it, but it was unreal. It was unreal for Real Madrid to turn around a tie in that fashion so quickly. Yeah, and I, I don't even think you can blame Pep Guardiola. I think fans want to do that sometimes um, because over the years he has had some moments of like, you know, the whole overthinking pep in the, in the champions league in particular, this is a guy who hasn't won champions league in 11 years now since the 2010, 2011 season. And in many of those tournaments since then, he's had the best team on paper. And I think that might be the case this year as well. Um, And yet so I don't think you can blame Pep's subs. I mean, yes, he took Kevin De Bruyne off, but he brought on Ilkay Gundogan, who, like, one of his first touches was just a really great touch that led to the goal from Mares, where you thought, okay, that's it. City's up two. They're fine. And... So I, I I don't think you can blame Pep Guardiola for the subs. I mean, Jack Grealish came on and created chances. Should have scored, but didn't because Furlan Mendy had an amazing clearance off the line when they were still, was it still a two-goal game? At that yes, point? it was. <laughs> and, and then an amazing save on Grealish from Courtois. And 
that that allowed Real Madrid to have a shot, any shot. And and so it's it's not a Pep screw up here. I don't feel like he made the wrong decisions, but but City defensively fell apart over just like a two minute period. And that's what's crazy to see. Over 180 minutes, that little moment is enough to kill you. And it does make you wonder, at least me, about when people talk about the weight of the, the jersey to wear and like stuff like that. I've always sort of like gone, yeah, not really. That's all you know, nonsense. But maybe there is something to it that the club you play for and the history of the club matters because the history of Real Madrid as a club in Champions League is what we saw again in a positive way. And we also saw the history of Man City, in a sense, in the Champions League in a negative way, not unlike PSG against Real Madrid just a few weeks ago. I I don't think you can invent winning tradition. I think... It's really hard. And that's why I remember when Pep Guardiola first showed up at Manchester City, he was like, it's going to take us a while to win this competition because I think he felt that winning tradition hadn't yet been invented. And so there's, I, I really believe that this competition is about blue bloods who've been there before and done it. I really do. And you look at this final. It's Liverpool against Real Madrid. Probably the, the English team that most represents winning in Europe and the Spanish team that most represents winning in Europe. Yeah. Uh, th- that's what, to me, this competition is. And yet, Manchester City could have killed off this tie a hundred times over over the course of the first 179 minutes of it. I, I, I really believe that. When you look at the, the first leg on balance of performance should not have finished 4-3. It should have finished... 5-2, you know, the goals, the goals that Real Madrid get are not necessarily born out of them playing brilliantly, but they, they create enough, they do enough to keep themselves in it. And then again, at the Bernabeu, I really thought that was a solid defensive performance for Manchester City for most of it. Uh, if you want to talk about subs, the only thing that I don't like is when they get so conservative that they basically have, you know, only three attackers on the field. Um, normally they play with five, which is a weird thing to say. Uh, but when they get down to having Fernandinho, Gundogan, and Rodrigo on at the same time, that's them, the closest thing that they represent to parking the bus. And I just think that you're like, that's just not what Manchester City do. They sort of have to keep playing, keep playing, keep playing all the way through to the very end. I I certainly think that Fernandinho um, at this level probably has run his race as a footballer at this level. Um, There were a couple times where he's caught out and you know that the big yellow card is coming and he's probably lucky to stay on at some points. But yeah, I mean, what can you say other than Real Madrid do this? And it's really frustrating from a Manchester City fan point of view that Man City, as of yet, don't. This is not who they are. And until they prove it to you, by holding up the trophy at the end, they earn every bit of skepticism that they have received for years. And I think, you know, you head into next year's competition. I I hope that the bookies have learned and and don't make Man City the favorites to win next year's competition again (laughs) because they're not. You can't consider them favorites until they do it. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's just crazy that this happened. And what a two games 
that was between these two teams. You know, the 4-3 in the opening leg, just exhilarating from start to finish. And the second game didn't feel that way for the first 70 minutes, but then it just totally went off the rails in the last 20 minutes of regulation uh, and then the extra time. So just two of the most memorable games for different reasons that you'll ever see at such a high level. And I don't know if the final is going to be able to match it, Liverpool and Real Madrid, but I am excited to see it. And uh, think it's going to be a really interesting rematch of the 2018 Champions League final won by Real Madrid. But uh, anything you want else you want to add, Chris? I, I agree with you on that final. I think uh, it is a really interesting proposition when you consider the, all, all the narrative pieces from that meeting four years ago, Loris Karius, uh, Mo Salah getting injured by Sergio Ramos as well. Uh, there were so many things that had. That's probably one of the most memorable finals uh, since I started watching the Champions League. So uh, really excited for that. Uh, Manchester City, I, here's another one for you. I don't think they're winning the league now. I think I think it's over. I I, re- I really do. I think oh, that God. that that Liverpool are going to are are going to overturn. I can't see Manchester City holding their. Uh, in, in, I'm going to use a you know fancy letterism holding their bottle uh, for 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 the la- for the last four <laughs> games. I think they're definitely dropping points in the run. And I don't think Liverpool are. I think Liverpool are going to win the league. I really do think that the Champions League result determine the pre- if if I if I could put 20 bucks on a team to win the champions or the Premier League it would be Liverpool right now 100% uh, I also think that Villarreal deserve a shout uh, for how they played in the first half I re- like the first team that we've seen have Liverpool on the ropes for a long time yeah. I'd actually probably say since the Man City game at Anfield or I guess maybe at the Etihad as well and kind of like the first 15 20 minutes Man City had them on the ropes but for a team, you know, perceivably of Villarreal's level, seventh in La Liga, to completely manhandle Liverpool for 45 minutes and make them sweat, make them bring on Luis Diaz at halftime to change the game, that, that was really impressive for those first 45 minutes from Villarreal. Not impressive, their goalkeeper. <laughs> yes, Ger- Geronimo Rulli leaves something to be desired. But yeah, you're right about Villarreal. Just uh, what a run by them. Uh, nobody thought that they had a shot in the second leg, and so to get to 2-2 at halftime was just very impressive before things went very wrong in the second half. But um, the angst-ridden Chris Whittingham about his Man City, just, I, I'm I'm fascinated. I hadn't actually thought about the impact on, on City in the league, uh, and, and you're telling me that they're just going to crumble now. Yeah. <laughs> so... I would I would project that Liverpool are going to win the league by a minimum of four points. I'm not kidding. Oh, man. Chris, thank you, as always. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Martin Tyler. Our guest now is one of the world's very best soccer broadcasters. Martin Tyler calls games for Sky Sports in the UK and the World Cup for SBS in Australia and has been broadcasting games at the highest level for nearly five decades. Martin, it's great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Those five decades have flown past, I can tell you. (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely fantastic to have you with us. And you have a lot of fans in the United States. Uh, You have, for me one of the most recognizable voices in world football. We're entering the month of May now. It has been a long season. 
do you have to do much to take care of your voice this time of year? No, I think there was a moment about three decades ago that I realized that I've never been trained. I'm not a thespian um, and that I'd just done it and that voice actually is something that does have to be treated with a little bit more respect than probably I was treating it. So I went to see a, a specialist who gave me, I said, how do you do this? You, you're not doing it like actors do. You should be breathing, speaking on the out breath, you know, and getting and that to protect your voice from anything. And she actually said, if you do this, your voice will never let you down. And obviously there's been illness. I've had COVID-19 and Mr. Week's work uh, earlier this year because of that. But by and large, it keeps going. I always say to people that I shout goal for a living and uh, I've been able to do that. So that little tweak all those years ago was important. And I think it taught me to respect um, the part of the body that allows me to broadcast. Are there elements of broadcasting a game? You've been doing this for a long time. Are there elements that are timeless? Are there certain ways that you approach calling a game today that you are doing basically the same way when you started? Yes, 100%. I think you identify the players. That's the first thing you do. And you have to put work in. It was very hard work at the beginning. There were no video recordings, really. There were no online uh, advantages of being able to just press a button and watch a player or watch a game and even check how he pronounces his name, which I know is a, is a big issue. Um, and rightly so. I take it very seriously. I always believe that he pronounced the way that the player would like. I always say, what would your mum say? You know, that kind of stuff. And sometimes they go, well, you could say it this way or you could say it that way. Um, but I always try and get to the bottom of it. It's not, not always 100% accurate, but it's it, my point of view. That's, that's something I've been doing for years. Uh, and I think basically getting some sort of information that's relevant to the match. You've got to remember that now I broadcast a game last night and there's probably 20 cameras on it. When I started, there were four. Mm -hmm. That was basically it. Uh, and no slow motion replays in play. That used to be added afterwards because these games weren't always live. So, but fundamentally it's still the same. Watch the game, love the game. I think that's perhaps I should put it the other way around. Love the game and then watch it. And then, you know, believe in yourself to be able to find the right kind of pathway. It's not an exact science. I'd be foolish to pretend I get it right all the time. And I guess the skill is trying to get it right more often than you get it wrong. Well, we're talking on Tuesday morning, UK time. I'm in Seattle, so it's right around midnight on Monday night here uh, where I am for right now. You just did a game last night where you are. Um, and... I'm wondering, what's your day-to-day -day workload like these days? Well, I'm, it's probably a bit pretentious to say it, but I, I like to think I'm a rhythm commentator where I, I like to do um, plenty of games. You know, I think it carries on from one to the next if you're doing it every two or three days. I've got another game. Uh, we are UK time. I think Tuesday around <laughs> 8.15 a.m. I've got another game at 8 p.m. Uh, on Wednesday, a Champions League game. And uh, so I get ready for that. And that's my day today. Um, I'm glad you got me up early. 
need to get up early. I got back from Manchester about six hours ago from broadcasting on the world feed for Manchester United against Brentford. Yeah, it's, it's a way of life, to be honest with you. Um, it's I can't differentiate really from from this to this and and anything else. Um, my family is very important to me and obviously takes top priority. But the truth is, they buy into what I do. They love the sport. My daughter's an actor. She really we talk a lot about voice, broadcasting, and performing. Um, I would say. I'm a broadcaster, you're a performer. There is a subtle difference. There is some performance in what we do. And um, it's a nice thing to be able to share with a member of your family, to be honest. You're doing then the Champions League game on, on Wednesday night. So that's going to be Man City against Real Madrid. Has it changed at all during COVID when you call a game like that? Are you are you traveling or are you doing that from a studio? How does that work for you? Um, I think that's the mystery of the uh, business. Um the traveling in COVID has been difficult. Traveling outside the UK has been difficult. Traveling in the UK has been, we've been very, very lucky. We've been asked Sky Sports games, all the commentators that they have in their stable. We thought probably that when it resumed, that project restart, that we would end up with uh, doing off monitors and sitting in our, on our base camp in, in Isleworth. And they have done that with uh, a lot of the, the studio, the presenters, the the yes, you see on screen. But the commentators and the co-commentator, we've been allowed to go to games all through the pandemic pretty much since it restarted. So um, it's been unbelievable privilege in, in a very difficult period of history to be able to do that. It's been a little bit odd in the grounds, but of course, with the, no fans being there sometimes. <laughs> Goal scored particularly by the awaiting. The, 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 is it just the it's in the dugout here, really? And you, you have to say, was was that a goal? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, uh, the, the, the 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 probably the expressions on the faces of the, both sets of players tell you it was, <laughs> but it wasn't um, as easy as it is when you you've obviously got seventy thousand people like I had in Manchester last night pointing the way that um, you know this was coming back to to normal. It's obviously been a much wider issue than sport that we love but because of the sport that we love there has been those concessions meant a huge amount to me as a as an older person mm-hmm. not uh, suffering from confinement and isolation and have the blessing of in fact when i was given my first three games in a batch after project restart i did get a call from the sky doctor and i thought oh no he's locked in my birth certificate you know this is going to be difficult and I was ready to retaliate. I got my retaliation in first, you know, when the call came. But all he was phoning, and with, with proper consideration, which I now totally respect and should have done the moment I picked up the phone, but I have to say didn't, um, uh, was that you've got to drive everywhere. You've got to drive on your own. And, and I see on your schedule, you've got to go to Manchester, then come back again. You've got another game two days later, quite close in London, but then you go back up to Liverpool and back again. Can you do that? And I went, yeah. And hopefully I will be able to do it well. And I was able to do it well. So, yeah, it, I, I, I wouldn't want to emphasize the difficulties and the change. I would just say how lucky we were as broadcasters in a relatively small country, of course, to be able to get about with this. This particular season, what will you remember the most from this particular season? Um, that's a very good question. I always believe in, in looking forward. We've talked about my next assignment. Um, 
I think looking back is is something you do when you finish. And I don't want to quite be in that state yet. So, But uh, to answer your question, I think the rivalry between Manchester City and Liverpool, which is not, not new, but relatively new, I suppose, three or four years, um, the level of play, the level of wanting to win, the consistent competition, relentless attitudes to get the result and the job done. I think it's been extraordinary. I mean, we're blessed in this country. They are leaving the others a little bit in their wake, but it's better two teams doing that than one, which is often the way in, in, in other countries. So we're proud of the sense of competition that we have all the way down the football pyramid um, from, from the Premier League elite down through our non-league system, which I've been connecting with in various guises since I was eight years old when I went to watch a, a non-league game. So I think, but I think that... I, I think they are so special. They are so special. The managers define it, I think, and their reluctance, total reluctance to accept anything but excellence is amazing. And it should be valued and treasured. And we try to do that as we go along. So it's just about the 10th anniversary of your memorable call of Sergio Aguero's title-winning stoppage time goal for Manchester City in 2012. I spoke to you five years ago about it for a story I wrote for Sports Illustrated, and I can't believe five more years have passed. What still stands out to you about that game and how you called the Aguero goal? I didn't mess it up. <laughs> That's every, every commentator or broadcaster listening to this will understand what I mean. Of course, it's instinctive, reactive, um, totally unscripted, and uh, just how you felt at that moment and how I hope everybody else felt that it was in sync with the uh, um, sense of amazement at the game, at the ground, and generally around the world watching football. It is 10 years on May the 13th. There is a reunion, um, and I've been honoured by being asked to go to the Manchester City reunion. And I know a lot of the players who took part are coming back. And so it'll be, it'll be great. I mean, it, I feel a little bit of a fraud being asked to it. I mean, I didn't touch the ball in the whole 90 minutes, I seem to remember, um, much as though I would have liked to have done. So, yeah, be associated with it has been a, a, another bunch of privileges, really. There's not a football match that I go to, and I go to a lot, that people don't ask me about it or ask me to do it. It's not easy to do that. <laughs> Try to... Um, I have a phrase, and it's live. I can do that for people. Um, but uh, doing the, uh, the Aguero with the Leos is something that was only produced by the great man himself and the great situation he found himself in and his team found himself in. It. I mean, they were supposed to win the game, weren't they? They were supposed to win the game quite easily. And uh, as much as you can ever win a Premier League game easily. Uh, but it, it, it was a, a true real-life drama and yeah, it was lucky to be the narrator. You mentioned it was unscripted. Has there ever been anything that you have scripted in advance? Or is that taboo? Or, or how does that how do how does a broadcaster like you look at something like that? I script the team news every game I do because we only have a certain amount of time for it. We have uh, on Sky Sports we have the team graphics are um, done through the system of play. So you you only have a few seconds on each goalkeeper back for whatever it is through the system play. And so that's always scripted because to get that wrong, the game would be five minutes into its action if we hadn't um, wrapped that up in the, in the appropriate time. So 
Um, that scripted, um, I have notes of details, but not notes of lines. Now, taboo is too strong a word for it, but you know, if, if you believe you can find the, the words more times than not, then and you trust your instincts, really. And, and it is, a, it is the, one of the reasons, I think, that play-by-play guys go on for so long. And Vina Scully is, obviously was somebody I, I, I met once, and, thrilled to uh, that was the case at a, at a world series back in the 80s and uh, but you can't do the job um 100% perfect you can't, it's just impossible so but you know your mind tells you oh yeah I've got to try I've got to keep trying and that's the search for perfection that, that carries us all forward really I guess I don't know how many games I do a season let's say 100 um probably two way thinking I got close. I got the right points across at the right time. But you know, the the anarchy of it is that you start to make a point that's not exactly to do with what's happening on the field, and you think it's the right time to drop it in, and then somebody whacks the ball sixty yards. Somebody else controls it, smashes it in the net, and you're three quarters of the way through your clever point and it's far from clever in fact it's a nightmare and you've got to try and get yourself out of that into oh what a brilliant goal you know and so that's the challenge that's it's it's, you know you're going to come away thinking I wish I'd said that I wish I hadn't said that and that's you have to have a mechanism in your in your head in your psyche to deal with that because there's a it's it's a wonderful um, but it comes with some sleepless The Premier League in the last decade has become far and away the biggest domestic league in Europe. What do you think it is about the Premier League that has caused that popularity? I think English football was was popular before around the world. There wasn't the mechanism, there weren't the technology to do it. But in the 80s, I was doing a game um, for worldwide soccer, I think it was called, which was broadcast on a three o'clock on a Saturday. It couldn't be broadcast in in the UK. Um, and it was sent around the world. And a lot of the, I think the, a lot of the Scandinavian countries took it. You can detect levels of support from those sort of eras. Uh, youngsters who've now, you know, become middle-aged men and still follow those teams and still come over. Gosh, there were a lot of Danes at Manchester United last night coming to pay tribute to Christian Eriksen and, of course, Thomas Frank and the other Danes that are in the in the, the setup at, um, at Brentford. So... Uh, I think I've always felt it's a value for money approach. The, the game gives you constant um, action from first whistle to last. Um, very few games now are sort of managed from an hour on to, oh, well, that will settle for 2 0. Even if we're losing, we'll settle for losing. And I do think that some, some countries in some era, I'm not saying now necessarily, but that has been a, a case that rather waters down the product. Um, I think the uh, and, and the clubs have and the Premier League, of course, is a, an amalgam of the clubs. The clubs own the Premier League, um, and we've had fifty of them. Brentford, the fiftieth team, fifty teams in thirty years, and I think that that shows a certain level of democracy. Um, and the teams that come up, they don't always. Um, probably one concern at the moment is the teams are going up and coming back down again a bit too regularly. Fulham have just come up, coming up for the third time in then three three successive seasons in the championship. So, um, and Watford and Norwich gone straight back down again. Um, so I think that that's a bit of a concern. But generally, value for money, action, great crowd 
um, noise, um, creating atmosphere for those watching from thousands of miles away. And, you know, you can get your, your merchandise. Uh, that's something that was learned from the USA. I can remember going around some of the NASL franchises back in the 70s and coming home with one or two um, bits, of, bits of gear that you wouldn't normally, you wouldn't have been able to get hit, really. Replica shirts, relatively new, relatively new in my, my lifespan. <laughs> Not for people like you, but um, that's, uh, I think the marketing has added to the, the quality on the field and we, we've got a great package. You mentioned you had met Vin Scully, and, and I do have a, a follow-up question there because he's obviously a legend in, in the United States in broadcasting. Uh, your stature globally is very Scully-like. What, what were the circumstances of you meeting Vin Scully? You said at a World Series, were, were you working mm. and happened to come into contact with him or some uh, other yeah. thing? Yeah, there was um, there were times in the eighties when the, the game on television was under a certain amount of threat from um, strikes from technicians, and um, so I sort of grabbed any other kind of work that that was available. And I mentioned the seventies being around. I, I was a single man in the seventies, and the USA was the place to go, you know. And 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 I needed a reason to go, and the NHL was a great reason to go. And I can remember. And seeing Bobby Moore, the great late Bobby Moore, uh, at a game, and thinking that well, I, I could go back and maybe even speak to the um, the expenses guys, saying, "Oh, well, look, I spent the evening with Bobby Moore, but bought him a few beers, and uh, so therefore I justified getting a flight from from Heathrow to to New York and beyond." Um, so, so I I'd seen some baseball when I was over. I liked it. I'm a big fan as well, and obviously there are similarities and. And I got asked if I would like to cover for a, a Channel 4 in this country um, a World Series. I went, well, yeah, and it fitted. We did most of it from London, so I could do my commentaries and come back to London, do, do the links and do the, 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 the games went live. Mm. So um, anyway, they said, well, you're going out. Now you're going to go. And you've got to do some bits with the players. And I can't do the, the players in the World Series. Oh, no, they'll do it. That's the USA way. Don't worry. Great man, uh, obviously, just in passing, and it was wonderful to hear the voice at close quarters and to be able to just love us and sure. And we, we meet a lot of famous people in our sports, but you know, broadcasting legends, he, he was, even then, I mean, I'm going back, this was mid-80s. So, um, was it Bill Buckner that the um, ball go past first base, was it? 1986. That's the one. That's when I was there. I was there that night. Wow. Caused me great, caused me great problems because I was ready to run on with my camera. And, of course, it went to game seven. But I was due at Derby County versus somebody in the League Cup. So I had to go home, and I never stayed for So he, he messed my schedule. I know he messed a lot of people's lives up. <laughs> and, and you, you and the entire city of Boston, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So I had to go home and we did game seven in London and I did it as I'd done probably games two, three and four. But it was, um, yeah, I could, we were not allowed to see. I never saw the play because we were kept behind a curtain huh. ready to run on. And, <laughs> and they went, ah. 
So there's a, a little bit of trivia, US trivia for you, but I was I was there. I was not expecting to talk about that topic with you in this interview. So I'm, I'm, I like that you shared that with me. Thank you. Um, just a couple more quick questions and really appreciate you taking the time. Um, there's a World Cup later this year in November and December of all times of the year to have one. And you're going to be working it. Um, if you had to pick one World Cup that was your favorite to broadcast, which one would it be and why? The next one, because it means somebody's asked me to do it. <laughs> um, no, that's not the, the right answer, of course, but I feel that. Um, I suppose the first one, because you never think, for a broadcaster, it's like the players being picked for the squad, you know. I was very inexperienced. The 1978 World Cup came in less than four years since my first broadcast, so I was really lucky to get that call, and I treasured it. I didn't do any, I did nine games. I didn't do any of them live, but I try and make the story as quick as possible, but just to indicate what for any young broadcasters who might be listening about this. Um, my first game was Mexico against Tunisia. Um, not the most glamorous game, but I was the young, young kid on the block for the ITV I was working for then. And Mexico, believe it or not, were playing in Germany beforehand. I thought, well, that's amazing. I've I, I got no, no, cam, no, no coverage of it, but I went to see them play club side in gym. They scored a penalty, and the captain, uh, Vasquez Ayala, Arturo Vasquez Ayala. And I went and come through, come to do a lot of hovering around, looking, checking faces, making sure they can recognize me. And it, so I stood outside the Mexico dressing room, which you could do then. And he, and he came out and he was sort of waiting for the team bus. And I had any, hardly any Spanish. He had hardly any English. But basically, I said, Do you always put your penalties that side? And he went, Always. So fast forward to the game. My very first game, my very first potential goal, and it turned out to be my very first World Cup goal Mexico get penalty. So I bravely say, I can tell you that he always puts it that side, the, the goalkeeper's side. Uh, and I didn't, I wasn't so pretentious to say, as he told me a few weeks ago. <laughs> and I held my breath. He scored, he put it that side, and that was, I was often a book. But that, the detail <laughs> that goes into, and there were no mobile phones, there was no way of, you had to go to the game. And I went to the game and I got lucky, and I suppose that was a, a moment that, I, I do a few talks for uh, media courses, and I always tell that story. Don't be shy of asking a few questions. Get yourself out there and try and meet up with people. You've got a better chance. Yeah, I, was, I really appreciate you sharing that because I was going to ask you, when young aspiring broadcasters ask you for advice, what do you tell them? Are there, are there any other things that you might share with them? It's very simple and it sounds trite and they laugh at me when I say it. I say, watch the game. Well, well, well that's what we're doing. But no, you're not. You, you're, you're, you're thinking about what your prep tells you the game is going to be. Watch what happens. Don't be frightened to go, oh, that's a terrible tackle. Or, oh, you know, he scored. He, you know, that's his first goal of the season. That's amazing. Um, so watch what actually happens. Don't be, don't read in. Uh, you don't get a lot of um, yeah, easy information about, about team lineups. But uh, last night, Ralph Rani, I have to say, came out and said, where Matt is playing, which was his first start of the season, and obviously his last game at Old Trafford in Manchester United Red, I'm sure. So we're going to, but Bruno Fernandes is going to play from the left. Now we'd put Matt on the right, Fernandes in the middle off the front, and Alanga, who can play across in, on the left. And then we went, oh, thanks, Ralph. So we'll put 
Milanga on the right, Matthew in the middle, and Bruno, who you just told us, Bruno on the left. And so that kind of, I think that kind of thing is common. Sometimes, of course, the, the information isn't always as correct. It might be a bit of a bum steer, you know, but <laughs> I can remember saying last night, and um, maybe some of your listeners to this listen to the um thanks ralph <laughs> yeah that was really helpful i'll think kindly of you for doing that so watch the game watch the game love the game and go for it and don't try to be martin tyler peter drury guy mowbray john motson barry davis all the great names over here and i don't mean me as a great name but you know that all the contemporaries don't try and be us try and be yourself that's exactly what you have to be and it's kind of nice, really, to be able to go to work and just be yourself. I mean, if you mess up, then it's your fault, isn't it? And if uh, you can't blame anybody else. And you will mess up. That's the other thing. Learn to live with mess-ups because it comes with the territory. And I think I was a bit serious at the start, to be honest with you. Um, I did the World Cup in 1982 with Jack Charlton, the great late Jack Charlton of um, obviously England's World Cup in 1896, Bobby's brother. And he said, lighten up. You're taking this too seriously. Lighten up. Uh, he was my co-commentator for the whole of the England games in that World Cup. I've tried to lighten up. Jack, thank you for that advice. It was very good advice. Last question for you is about the World Cup later this year. Uh, we've seen England get to the semifinals of the last World Cup and the final of the last Euros. If England were to win a World Cup and you were to broadcast it, what would that mean to you? Would that be any, would you experience that differently than broadcasting a different team winning the World Cup? I hope not, because I'm broadcasting for Australia, where there is a, a huge love of England, a certain section of the population, and the great sporting rivalry from another great section of the population. So I have to bear that in mind. Personally, it would mean a lot. I mean, I, I did the, um, the Euro final and uh, I, I felt that I just wanted the game to be sorted out in a, in a way that, that rewarded the, the better team. England were the better team at the start and I think Italy deserved to win at very fine margins. England didn't really take full advantage of the early supremacy, the early Luke Shaw goal. So actually, Luke Shaw, I'm, I met Luke Shaw when he was 10 years old. <laughs> just across the way where I'm pointing here, you can't see this. but um, and, and for me, that was a personal thing. You know? He played against the school team that was my, my own son was playing in. So, um, you know, that was, uh, that's kind of, you get those kind of moments. But the truth is, I have to broadcast it from the heart, but from the head as well, mindful of the audience. I've always said, uh, if there's words that I haven't been able to utter in my broadcasting career for nearly five decades and we started with, England have won the World Cup, are probably the words that I would like to have to broadcast. But that's personal, professionally. I can only tell you on the day. It, was, it wasn't kind of, there's an Englishman broadcast. I was working for UEFA for the World Feed on the Euro 2020 final. And I hope people don't think I was, I was biased. I never say England are we, even when I do England games for, for Sky Sports, because we're British Sky broadcasting. You know, we've got Scotland, Wales, and, and, and Ireland as well. So um, we'll see. They've got a chance. November's a good time to play. If, if they'll be in their, into their stride, they won't be exhausted. Um, but it'll be very hot, even though it's not as hot as it would be if it played in the Orthodox time. Others will be feeling the same advantage as well from, from Europe. So we'll see. Um, but there is a logical progression. Semi-final uh, of the World Cup, 
Um, the uh, the Nations League finished third, fourth in the World Cup, third in the inaugural Nations League following year, and of course second in uh, at Wembley in US in twenty twenty one. We'll see. It would be um, it would be for a country that has puts huge expectation on its players. I think it would be a reward for Gareth Southgate and this fine group of young footballers and young people that we have at the moment. Martin Tyler called games for Sky Sports in the UK and the World Cup for SBS in Australia. Martin, thanks so much for for coming on the show. Thanks for staying up to make it happen. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Martin Tyler, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. 